Hi, everybody, and welcome to That's Life, where it is still Why You Max Madness here in the Nachum Siegel Network studios, and all we can say is let's go max. T-minus 27 hours? Something like that? T-minus, yeah, 26 and a half? Yeah, 26 and a half. 26 and a half hours until the big game in Baltimore. Good morning, folks, and thanks for listening. I'm Miriam L. Wallach, General Manager here at the Nachum Siegel Network. You can find me here right after Allison, right before Nachum's live lunch. A good morning to Yoni. Hola. How are you? Pretty, pretty good. Excellent. Yeah, so thank go. God all is good. I have, um, I've uh, sprayed down the studio with Fantastic. Mm-hmm. At least my section. You're on your own over there. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to change anything, but sure. You're not going to change anything. What does that mean? You got to be, it's not a question of being um, hysterical. It's a question of being cautious. Something tells me from from knowing each other for the last four and a half years, yes. you and I have different philosophies. That's when it comes true. To like That's this. true. You have science experiments in your refrigerator, yeah, exactly. and I empty my refrigerator on a weekly because basis. Because of the way I have decided to go about my life over, the, over you know, forever, yeah. I feel like I'm immune to anything. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay, sure. So do my kids, but I still make them Purell. Right. Um, actually, yesterday, a repairman came in the house, and I asked him, I, I Purell'd his hands before he went any further he into my house. Him. Yeah, he put him into the uh, into like the, the shower. Stop like touching the sh- your eyes! <laughs> <laughs> no, I made sure just to, and he had no problem with it. I mean, it's good for him, it's good for everybody. No, it's just true. good practice, yeah. let's yeah. be honest. Let's. It's just good practice. So if you are quarantined... Um, and you're listening to this show, and a heartfelt shout out to you, and I say, I say that sincerely. Um, we wish everyone good health. We wish a refuah shlema to um, the 50-year-old gentleman who is still in the hospital who yeah. had tested positive with coronavirus. Um, we wish him and his family and everyone else who has tested positive, frankly, all over the planet, we wish you a refuah shlema. We hope that your symptoms are not severe, and that um, when the when your quarantine is lifted, that you are good and healthy and ready to go. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, again, no, no, not looking for people to be hysterical, like the people who have purchased enough tuna and baked beans and stored them in my garage to last an apocalypse. Not like those people. And by the way, I got plenty of gloves. Plenty of gloves. But. We are just looking for caution. We're just looking for caution. I'm trying We're- to think of that movie where- Just um, good, use good judgment. What movie? The movie Outbreak? Where, no. Where, no. Where, I've been like thinking a, about like, Outbreak. What is it? A meteor strikes the house and they had to move downstairs on this underground- No, um, I don't know what you're watching, but we're not clearly <sighs> not watching the same ago. thing. I have to think about it. Um, but do you think it'll, it's going to come up during the live lunch? I think we might talk about coronavirus and the numerous cancellations that have taken place in different stratospheres. Right. Um, that affect us here locally, including the uh, the canceling of the Nefesh Benefesh Mega that yeah. should that was scheduled to take place on March fifteenth from where we were going to be broadcasting, and now that has been canceled. Uh, we had an engagement party scheduled for this Sunday with for friends of ours for their their son and future daughter in law. That's been canceled. Right. Um, the Jerusalem Marathon has been postponed. There are a number of very serious health concerns here on a global level, and again, people are exercising restraint and exercising in my opinion good judgment there's reason to be cautious here and we know that sar has been quarantined for a number of days um which is again under good judgment and this morning this is unbelievable you know let's talk about modern technology for a second we always talk about how technology and and everything on this planet can be used for both good and for evil yeah so here you have an opportunity to continue to teach kids 
and Davin with kids, even when they're at home and you're somewhere else because you guys all can't be in the same place. Okay. Right? So, for example, Stern College is is, is uh, canceled its classes through Tuesday. Right. My daughter came home last night, brought all her books. She expects to have virtual classes while she's home. Really? Yep. A hundred percent. She knows she's still going to have midterms and she knows whatever. So there are a variety of classes online. And um, I know somebody who teaches at a local yeshiva in the five towns. She is being prepped by her school on how to do remote classroom um, experiences. That's cool. Yeah, because they're not, nobody's under lockdown or not, not lockdown. Nobody's under quarantine as a school in the five towns at the moment. But they are prepping their teachers as to what to do in in the event right. that we need. What to. it's like to be a teacher. I'm just thinking about like what it's like to be a teacher or a kid. Correct. Like in a few years from now, even snow days. It's like all right, like just hop on your laptop. We're having school. Right, as we're having school. Normal. We're having school. You're not losing two weeks of I'm education. I'm kind of sad for that. Though. Right, <laughs> sad for you guys. Yeah, we can. I mean, use I'm at a school, but like you know. right, no, a hundred percent. So shout out to Sar. Sar this morning put out an email. Um, asking everyone to join in the virtual bar mitzvah of one of their students. Everyone was invited to click on a Zoom link. Okay, basically a Zoom is a virtual meeting, like, uh, what do we call it? Virtual meeting place? Yeah. Okay, a virtual meeting place, so that everyone could hear this kid Lane and participate virtually in his bar mitzvah, which I think is the coolest thing ever. And a first of all, a mazel tov to the bar mitzvah boy, um, a mazel tov to the bar mitzvah boy. His name is Jojo. He was bar mitzvah this morning. A mazel tov to him. And a shkayach, or as we would joke around here, actually a greiser shkayach. Okay, yeah. yeah, a greiser shkayach to everyone at SAR for creating a community that exists both in person and in the virtual world. I think this is great. I'm an SAR grad. I've always been proud of SAR being, you know, open-minded and, and, and just creative in terms of how to create a community within the classroom. And this was back in the 80s when I was there. I'm telling you, this is so perfect. Kudos to SAR. And if we all find ourselves at various times in situations where we cannot all be in the same place at the same time, I, I you know, I, I just encourage us to think out of the box because we are great together. We really are great together, and we can continue to be great together even when we are apart. Let's talk about the national holidays. It is American Immigration Lawyers Association Day of Action. Okay. That could have used a shorter title. (laughs) I feel like a lot of these. Yeah. It's name tag day. I, I Do I need a name tag here? I wonder if you need a name well, tag. Well, I think I lost. I was thinking about it. My Wheel of Fortune name tag. Are you serious? Oh, no, I got to find it. How could you lose something sure like this that? This just might be in my Wheel of Fortune baggie, but I got to find it. Because that would take looking for. That's true. Uh-huh. It is National uh, Poutine Day. For those of you who don't know what poutine is, poutine is one of the best things to come out of Canada. All right. I'm not fans of everything that comes out of Canada. We love our Canadian neighbors. We love that they apologize for everything. But poutine is French fries with gravy and cheese curds. So if you're having it in a kosher restaurant, like in um, Mocha Burger mm-hmm. down here in Soho, then you're having it with you know par of fake cheese or whatever it is, and you're having it with real gravy. Alternatively, if you're having it in a dairy restaurant, then your gravy is obviously vegetarian or tarev, right. and you're having it with real cheese. To shorten that description, just yum. 
Yes, a it's a lot of yum. Yeah. It's a lot of cholesterol. But hey, you're not eating it every day. <laughs> also, it's World Book Day, something I will participate in, and World mm-hmm. Tennis Day, something that neither you nor I will Correct. participate in. Yeah. Um, all right, we have time for a fortune cookie. Yeah, let's do it. I'm quickly. doing it. I'm doing it quickly. I can't open the fortune cookie. That is unfortunate. Hold on. Is it going to be something health related? Let's find out. Let's find out. The most difficult thing to be is what other people want you to be. Not okay. health related, but no, like not it. health related at all. But yeah, yeah, um, and true. Be true to yourself, folks. Absolutely. It's a little bit. Uh, the most difficult thing to be is what other people want you to be. That's deep, folks. I like it. That's deep. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network, and I am joined by Dr. Ephraim Zuroff. Dr. Zuroff is an American-born Israeli historian and Nazi hunter who has played a key role in bringing indicted Nazis and fascist war criminals to trial. Dr. Zoroff is the director of the Simon Wiesenthal Center office in Jerusalem. He's the coordinator of Nazi war crimes research for the Wiesenthal Center and is the author of its annual status report on the worldwide investigation and prosecution of Nazi war criminals, which includes a list of most wanted Nazi war criminals. Dr. Zoroff, good morning. Good morning. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. I know that you are in between travels, and I'm catching you in between flights. You're going to be uh, joining the Brooklyn neighborhood this Sunday at the Manhattan Beach Jewish Center. That's March 8th, starting at 11.30 a.m. You're discussing your life as a Nazi hunter, catching the perpetrators, combating Holocaust denial and distortion with a focus on Croatia today. I have to imagine that when you grew up as a boy in New York and a Yeshiva University graduate, it, it didn't actually occur to you that you might grow up to be a Nazi hunter. Am I right? You're 100% right. My dream, my fantasy, I should say, growing up in Brooklyn and uh, was actually to be the first Orthodox Jew to play in the NBA. <laughs> and where did that turn into Nazi hunting? Listen, it was actually by pure chance. It, I happened to be the right person in the right place at the right time. I never had any such aspirations. I never, it never crossed my mind to, to become involved. But uh, what happened was that I was I had to come. I was, I was very interested in the history of the, the, history of the Holocaust uh, from an intellectual point of view. I'm, I'm not the child of survivors. My parents were both born in America. To be honest, I think that if my parents had been survivors, I don't think I could do this job. But in any event, I always had a very keen interest in Jewish history, especially in contemporary Jewish history. And in a certain sense, I'm a child of the generation of 67. When the Six-Day War really changed a lot in the Jewish world and inspired and motivated a lot of interest in the Holocaust as well. And uh, I also wanted to make Aliyah, and my parents had convinced me that, that the BA was not enough. So I decided to go to Hebrew University and enroll in a program in a field called Contemporary Jewelry. And you had to choose a specialization, and one of those specializations was the history of the Holocaust. Now, I originally chose Contemporary Jewelry because I was thinking of working perhaps in the, in the foreign ministry or in the Jewish agency, something to do with the Jewish world. But... When I got to Israel, I realized that the studies there were not at all in any way practical. Hmm. And basically, 
it was a play, it was a program to train scholars in the fields of Jewish contemporary Jewish history, Jewish history in the 20th century, uh, Zionism, also, and and, uh, and Jewish demography, Jewish demography and sociology. So, in other words, I if I would. I thought I would have to spend three years there, which ultimately turned into five years. If I was going to have to sit and study for five years, I may as well study the, the questions or the issues that intrigued me the most, interested me the most from an intellectual point of view. And coming from a very activist background, I was very involved in uh, fighting for Soviet Jewry. I established the first Israel Aliyah Club at Yeshiva University. I, did, I went to a lot of demonstrations and all that. The question that really, that really, I was very interested in trying to learn about was how on earth could the Holocaust have taken place, and what did Jews in America, and especially people like my family, modern Orthodox family, uh, what did they know about the Holocaust while it was taking place, and what, if anything, did they do? So the 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 show the show that is presently on Amazon Prime called Hunters, which was the inspiration for my reaching out to you in the first place, ha- is set on a premise of basically a vigilante group of Nazi hunters existing here in the seventies in the New York area, where they've decided to hunt down Nazis and take justice into their own hands. With all of your experience and knowledge, tell me, could that is there any truth to that premise in the first place? Did they did a group like this exist? There's no truth whatsoever. And I'll explain to you how I think that this, this, this whole thing evolved. About 20 years ago, a person who claimed to have been in office in the Israeli Air Force published a book in which he claimed that he had joined a band of Jewish vigilantes, which was financed by a very wealthy Holocaust survivor, went all over North America killing Nazis. Now, the book came out in English, in Hebrew, and in French, and perhaps in other languages. But there were no hard details in the book. And whenever this person was asked about names, etc., he remained, you know, he didn't reveal any information. Now, at a certain point in time, we were launching a project called Operation Last Chance at the Wiesenthal Center, which offered money in return for information. And we were approached by the German police and asked to name Dr. Arbert Heim, the doctor who served at Mauthausen, that was incredible sadist and murdered people in the most horrific ways, like he was like a mini Mengele, so to speak, to name him as the one, number one target of Operation Last Chance because the Germans were convinced that there was an excellent chance that he was still alive. All of a sudden, this guy, his name was Danny Paz, started claiming that he had murdered Albert Heim in North, in North America. I think near the Canadian border or something like this. Now, he had no idea, to be honest, this guy had never mentioned Albert Heim, but he obviously wanted to sort of latch on to the publicity for this big number one case. Mm. It later turned out, of course, that Albert Heim had died in Cairo, nowhere near North America. Mm. But 
it's perhaps possible. I mean, I have no you know, proof that this is the case. But this book might have served as the inspiration for the series. Because if you notice, the series says that it was inspired by true events. Right. And my take is that it was not inspired by any true events. That pure fiction. Interesting. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We're discussing Hunters, presently available, currently available on Amazon Prime. It's a 10-episode series all about a vigilante group of Nazi hunters existing in the 70s here in the New York area. And we are joined by Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, chief Nazi hunter of the Simon Wiesenthal Center and director of the Wiesenthal Center's Israel Office and Eastern European Affairs. It's very interesting, Dr. Zuroff. I, I, I completely, I mean, obviously I'm... You know, I am to say a novice at this is an understatement, but based upon the way you're explaining this book, I mean, I I finished the series and I enjoyed the series as a spectator, not as somebody who was looking at it from a historical perspective and looking for it for truth. But for me, just as a viewer, as I was I was taken in by this idea of of. Of, of, I guess, for lack of a better word, of this revenge and of these human superheroes making good from the evil in, in this world. And one of the one of the points in in the in the series that really got to me was when you know there at the beginning of the series, Al Pacino's character reminds his. Um, Shall we call it jo- Jonah, who is is the younger character? The two of them are the two main characters. He reminds Jonah that the Talmud says that living well is the best revenge, and then Al Pacino's character says, "No, revenge is the best revenge." And then later on in the series, um, there's a meeting between Al Pacino's character and and Simon Wiesenthal, who is played by Judd Hirsch. And there's a a meeting of the mind, so to speak, in which Wiesenthal in this scene turns to Judd her turns to Al Pacino and says to him, we don't conduct justice with our hands. We, We conduct justice in in a in a courtroom. That's where we are. We are meant to bring justice. And Al Pacino says, I am bringing justice on behalf of six million. And so that juxtaposition of of the way, you know, of the way one fictitious Nazi hunter versus a real life Nazi hunter or handling justice to me very much spoke to me. I wonder if you could speak to that from your point of view as a real life Nazi hunter, but the importance of bringing justice in a courtroom. First of all, as a disciple of Simon Wiesenthal, I can tell you that Simon was 100% against revenge. 100%. And he always emphasized the importance of bringing these people to justice. I think what people have to understand is that society cannot exist if there is no justice. Without justice, there's chaos. There's no no, no, no justice and no uh, uh, hope of being able to protect innocent people. So Mr. Wiesenthal understood that from the very beginning. And there's a very well-known episode, anecdote, about one of the things that strengthened his, his belief in justice, which was the following. Um, he was liberated in Mauthausen, as some of our listeners probably know, by the American Army in early May of 1945. He was barely alive. 
but within a couple of uh, weeks, months, he became East Chief. What happened was this. The inmates needed permission to leave the camp. In other words, the camp, once the camp was liberated, the inmates were free to go as they pleased, but they had to tell the camp administration. The person who was put in charge by the American Army was a Polish papa by the name of Rusek, who was a notorious anti-Semite. So on, apparently on the, one of the first times that the Tsar Wiesenthal wanted to leave the camp and go out and see you know, the surroundings and get the fresh air or whatever, um, he had to ask Rusek for permission. And Rusek said to him, when he saw him, oh, Wiesenthal, you're alive? What a shame. Mm. The shame that the Nazis didn't finish you off. And he, and he hit him. Now, Simon, he recalls this in, in, his, in one of his books. He, he was an absolute shock. He was saying to himself, listen, the war is over. The Germans and the Nazis are gone. What's going on here? It's as if nothing changed. And he, he didn't know what to do. And he thought about it and thought about it. And he had been befriended by an American soldier named Abby Mann. Abby Mann later became a very famous uh, TV producer. And when... Simon told him the story. He says, listen, you have to go to the commandant. You have to go to the chief, the highest American officer, Richard Sable, and tell him the story. Now, word got out among the inmates that Simon was going to go to Richard Sable and complain about Russo. And they started threatening him. And they started saying, listen, they're going to make his life miserable. They'll get back at him. Etc. And Simon was really, he had a dilemma, but he went ahead anyway. And what Sable did, what Colonel Richard Sable did, was to order an investigation of the incident. He determined that it was true, and Rusev was, re, was removed from his post. And this was a very important lesson for, for Simon, because it basically told him, that the, it basically emphasized for him that the difference between the world of the Nazis, where there was no justice whatsoever, or justice was distorted to serve the, the, the agenda of these murderers, of these you know, racists, um, anti-Semites, uh, justice is what makes a difference between that world, the world of the Nazis, and the new world that the people who survived hoped they would be able to build so that there would never be another Holocaust. Not against the Jews, certainly, and not against anybody else. Amazing. Amazing. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We're joined by Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, Chief Nazi Hunter of the Simon Wiesenthal Center. There's um, another underlying storyline um, in the in Hunters, which is this re- revelation um that the Americans were responsible for the relocation of of hundreds of Nazis here to the United States during as part of what was known as Operation Paperclip. And it was justified by the State Department as needing to move these Nazi scientists and doctors, etc., here to the United States so that they would not fall under Soviet hands. And obviously, we the um, you know they had the arms the um, the race to the moon. And so many different, um, you know, issues between the Americans and the Russians that there was this need, quote unquote, to make sure that they stayed here in America and that they worked for the Americans. I presume from what I've read that at least that part of the storyline from Hunters is true. 
Okay, let me explain something about the whole issue of the entry of Nazi war criminals into the United States. Probably the most accurate estimate of the Nazi war criminals slash collaborators, accomplices, who entered the United States was approximately 10,000. Now, there are three groups of people who make up this 10,000. One is, as you correctly stated, Nazi, not only uh, not only uh, scientists, but also engineers who worked on the V2 rockets. Right. Now, the Nazis originally had a had a base on Panamunda on the Baltic Sea where they produced these weapons. This was supposed to be the weapon that would help the Nazis win the war. It was like the miracle, you know, the, the secret weapon which of enormous, uh, you know, capability, which they hoped would finally defeat Britain and eventually help them win the war. The, the base was discovered by the Allies in the course of World War II and was bombed. Uh, and as a result, the Nazis moved the base to a concentration camp called Dora. It was a branch of Buchenwald. And they built these enormous tunnels in the Hartz Mountains there, and they were able to resume production of V2s. Now, exactly as you stated, the fear in the United States was that these experts whose knowledge and technology was advanced, very advanced, more advanced than the American technology in this respect, would fall into Soviet hands and give the Soviets the advantage. And the sad truth is that uh, within, I'm tempted to say within minutes after the end of World War II, the Cold War began. As I said, the American authorities and many people in the outside of the Eastern Europe were unaware of the super important role played by local Nazi collaborators in, that, in the Shoah, especially in the phase of the Eintracht movement. The shooting the Holocaust by bullets, a billion and a half Jews murdered in 41 to 43. One example, Lithuania, where 220,000 Jews lived under the Nazi occupation, of whom 212,000 were murdered. And there were only less than a thousand Germans in the Lithuanian during the Nazi occupation. Wow, unbelievable! It does. It doesn't. The strata of Lithuanian society collaborate. It doesn't seem to me. It doesn't seem to me like your work. Your work is yet over. I, I, um, I. With with every passing day that we lose another survivor to, you know, old age and, and, and disease or health or issues or whatever, it seems to me that the work of, that your work and your mission and that of the Wiesenthal Center will, will live on for a little bit longer. That is for, that is for sure. It's a natural progression in a certain sense. Because the truth of the matter is that my real profession is as a historian, okay? So we see that as it's getting harder and harder, obviously for obvious reasons, to bring Nazis to justice. So though it's still continuing, and I can talk to you about that also on a different occasion. I was just at a trial in Hamburg on the back of Stutthof, and that's one of many investigations going on. Wow. Um, but... Um, the issue of Holocaust distortion in Eastern Europe has become a very, very serious and dangerous problem. And basically, we're talking about post-communist Eastern Europe. Only in Eastern Europe did collaboration with the Nazis include participation in systematic mass murder. It was not the case anywhere else in Europe. Elsewhere in Europe, the 
collaborators helped the Nazis in the first stage of the final solution, defining who's a Jew, passing laws against the Jews to make their lives impossible, and then rounding them up to send them somewhere else to be murdered by someone else. Well, and most and someplace of, uh, else, where uh, Eastern Europe goes somewhere else with the Nazis and their Eastern European elders. And many of this, much of this is what you will be covering this Sunday at the Manhattan Beach Jewish Center. That, is, that event starts at 11.30 a.m. Again, that's Sunday, March 8th, this Sunday. And it's my life as a Nazi hunter, catching the perpetrators, combating Holocaust denial and distortion with a focus on Croatia today. Dr. Ephraim Zuroff, thank you so much for joining me. This was fascinating. And um, you have an open invitation here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We look forward to welcoming you back. That is for sure. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you very much. You're listening to That's Life here at the Nachum Siegel Network. We're going to be bringing up the song in the background. It's the Perm song by the Maccabees, not to be confused with the Maccabees, who are playing tomorrow in Baltimore. And don't sing. That is correct. By the way, I mess them up all the time. I say Maccabees and Maccabees when I shouldn't say the other one. Whatever. Anyway, anyway, all good. Live lunch starts in just a few moments. Nachum, Yoni, and I here in studio wishing everyone a Chag Purim Sameach. And stay healthy, folks. Stay healthy. That's life, everybody. Bye, guys. From behind the scenes, she wore the royal crown. Three days, the Jews just prayed. Queen Esther risked her life, went to save the day. She took Haman down. The streets were filled with celebration. Everyone ate Haman Tashin. Jubilation for the nation.
Raise your glasses, you see God.